Chapter 15, Part 4 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Burgoyne. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1. The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova Episode 3 Military Career Chapter 15 Part 4 Thus did she every day plunge me in despair, and yet she complained that my wit was no longer brilliant in society, that I had lost that elasticity of spirits which had pleased her so much after my arrival from Constantinople, Monsieur D. R., who often jestingly waged war against me, used to say that I was getting thinner and thinner every day. Madame F. told me one day that my sickly looks were very disagreeable to her, because wicked tongues would not fail to say that she treated me with cruelty. Strange, almost unnatural thought. On it I composed an idol which I cannot read, even now without feeling tears in my eyes. What, I answered, you acknowledge your cruelty towards me. You are afraid of the world guessing all your heartless rigour, and yet you continue to enjoy it. You condemn me unmercifully to the torments of Tantalus, you would be delighted to see me gay, cheerful, happy, even at the expense of a judgment by which the world would find you guilty of a supposed but false kindness towards me, and yet you refuse me even the slightest favours. I do not mind people believing anything, provided it is not true. What a contrast! Would it be possible for me not to love you? for you to feel nothing for me. Such contradictions strike me as unnatural, but you are growing thinner yourself, and I am dying. It must be so. We shall both die before long, you of consumption, I of exhausting decline, for I am now reduced to enjoying your shadow during the day, during the night, always, everywhere, except when I am in your presence. At that passionate declaration, delivered with all the ardour of an excited lover, she was surprised, deeply moved, and I thought that the happy hour had struck. I folded her in my arms, and was already tasting the first fruits of enjoyment. The sentinel knocked twice. Oh, fatal mischance! I recovered my composure and stood in front of her. Monsieur D. R. made his appearance, and this time he found me in so cheerful a mood that he remained with us until one o'clock in the morning. My comforts were beginning to be the talk of our society. Monsieur D. R., Madame F., and I were the only ones who had a box full of them. I was stingy with them, and no one durst beg any from me, because I had said that they were very expensive, 
and that in all Corfu there was no confectioner who could make or physician who could analyze them. I never gave one out of my crystal box, and Madame F. remarked it. I certainly did not believe them to be amorous filtre, and I was very far from supposing that the addition of the hair made them taste more delicious. But a superstition, the offspring of my love, caused me to cherish them, and it made me happy to think that a small portion of the woman I worshipped was thus becoming a part of my being. Influenced, perhaps, by some secret sympathy, Madame F. was exceedingly fond of the comforts. She asserted before all her friends that they were the universal panacea, and knowing herself perfect mistress of the inventor, she did not inquire after the secret of the composition. But having observed that I gave away only the comforts which I kept in my tortoise-shell box, and that I never eat any but those from the crystal box, she one day asked me what reason I had for that. Without taking time to think, I told her that in those I kept for myself there was a certain ingredient which made the partaker love her. I do not believe it, she answered, but are they different from those I eat myself? They are exactly the same, with the exception of the ingredient I have just mentioned, which has been put only in mine. Tell me what the ingredient is. It is a secret which I cannot reveal to you. Then I will never eat any of your comforts. Saying which, she rose, emptied her box, and filled it again with chocolate drops, and for the next few days she was angry with me and avoided my company. I felt grieved, I became low-spirited, but I could not make up my mind to tell her that I was eating her hair. She inquired why I looked so sad, because you refused to take my comforts. You are master of your secret, and I am mistress of my diet. That is my reward for having taken you into my confidence. And I opened my box, emptied its contents in my hand, and swallowed the whole of them, saying, Two more doses like this, and I shall die mad with love for you. Then you will be revenged for my reserve. Farewell, madam. She called me back, made me take a seat near her, and told me not to commit follies which would make her unhappy. But I knew how much she loved me, and that it was not owing to the effect of any drug. To prove to you, she added, that you do not require anything of the sort to be loved. Here is a token of my affection. And she offered me her lovely lips, and upon them mine remained pressed, until I was compelled to draw a breath. I threw myself at her feet, with tears of love and gratitude blinding my eyes, and told her that I would confess my crime, if she would promise to forgive me. Your crime? You frighten me. Yes, I forgive you, but speak quickly and tell me all. Yes, everything. My comforts contain your hair reduced to a powder. Here on my arm, 
See this bracelet on which our names are written with your hair, and round my neck this chain of the same material, which will help me to destroy my life when your love fails me. Such is my crime, but I would not have been guilty of it if I had not loved you. She smiled, and, bidding me rise from my kneeling position, she told me that I was indeed the most criminal of men, and she wiped away my tears, assuring me that I should never have any reason to strangle myself with the chain. After that conversation, in which I had enjoyed the sweet nectar of my divinity's first kiss, I had the courage to behave in a very different manner. She could see the ardour which consumed me. Perhaps the same fire burned in her veins, but I abstained from any attack. What gives you, she said one day, the strength to control yourself? After the kiss which you granted to me of your own accord, I felt that I ought not to wish any favour unless your heart gave it as freely. You cannot imagine the happiness that kiss has given me. I not imagine it, you ungrateful man. Which of us has given that happiness? Neither you nor I, angel of my soul. That kiss so tender, so sweet, was the child of love. Yes, dearest, of love the treasures of which are inexhaustible. The words were scarcely spoken when our lips were engaged in happy concert. She held me so tight against her bosom that I could not use my hands to secure other pleasures, but I felt myself perfectly happy. After that delightful skirmish, I asked her whether we were never to go any further. Never! dearest friend, never. Love is a child which must be amused with trifles. Too substantial food would kill it. I know love better than you. It requires that substantial food, and unless it can obtain it, love dies of exhaustion. Do not refuse me the consolation of hope. Hope as much as you please, if it makes you happy. What should I do if I had no hope. I hope, because I know you have a heart. Ah, yes, do you recollect the day when in your anger you told me that I had only a head, but no heart, thinking you were insulting me grossly? Oh, yes, I recollect. How heartily I laughed when I had time to think. Yes, dearest, I have a heart, or I should not feel as happy as I feel now. Let us keep our happiness, and be satisfied with it, as it is, without wishing for anything else. Obedient to her wishes, but every day more deeply enamoured, I was in hope that nature at last would prove stronger than prejudice, and would cause a fortunate crisis. But, besides nature, fortune was my friend, and I owed my happiness to an accident. Madame F. was walking one day in the garden, leaning on Monsieur D. R.'s arm, and was caught by a large rose bush, and the prickly thorns left a deep cut on her leg. Monsieur D. R. 
bandaged the wound with his handkerchief, so as to stop the blood which was flowing abundantly, and she had to be carried home in a palanquin. In Corfu, wounds on the legs are dangerous when they are not well attended to, and very often the wounded are compelled to leave the city to be cured. Madame F. was confined to her bed, and my lucky position in the house condemned me to remain constantly at her orders. I saw her every minute, but during the first three days visitors succeeded each other without intermission, and I never was alone with her. In the evening, after everybody had gone, and her husband had retired to his own apartment, Monsieur D. R. remained another hour, and for the sake of propriety, I had to take my leave at the same time that he did. I had much more liberty before the accident, and I told her so half seriously, half jestingly. The next day, to make up for my disappointment, she contrived a moment of happiness for me. An elderly surgeon came every morning to dress her wound, during which operation her maid only was present, but I used to go in the morning, disabille, to the girl's room and to wait there, so as to be the first to hear how my dear one was. That morning the girl came to tell me to go in as the surgeon was dressing the wound. See whether my leg is less inflamed. To give an opinion, madam, I ought to have seen it yesterday. True, I feel great pain, and I am afraid of erysipelas. Do not be afraid, madam, said the surgeon. Keep your bed, and I answer for your complete recovery. The surgeon being busy preparing a poultice at the other end of the room, and the maid out, I inquired whether she felt any hardness in the calf of the leg and whether the inflammation went up the limb, and naturally my eyes and my hands kept pace with my questions. I saw no inflammation, I felt no hardness, but, and the lovely patient hurriedly let the curtain fall, smiling and allowing me to take a sweet kiss, the perfume of which I had not enjoyed for many days. It was a sweet moment, a delicious ecstasy. From her mouth my lips descended to her wound, and satisfied in that moment that my kisses were the best of medicines. I would have kept my lips there if the noise made by the maid coming back had not compelled me to give up my delightful occupation. When we were left alone, burning with intense desires, I entreated her to grant happiness at least to my eyes. I felt humiliated, I said to her, by the thought that the felicity I have just enjoyed was only a theft. But supposing you were mistaken? The next day I was again present at the dressing of the wound, and as soon as the surgeon had left, she asked me to arrange her pillows, which I did at once as if to make that pleasant office easier. She raised the bedclothes to support herself, and she thus gave me a sight of beauties which intoxicated my eyes, 
and I protracted the easy operation without her complaining of my being too slow. When I had done, I was in a fearful state, and I threw myself in an armchair opposite her bed, half dead, in a sort of trance. I was looking at that lovely being who, almost artless, was continually granting me greater and still great favours, and yet never allowed me to reach the goal for which I was so ardently longing. "'What are you thinking of?' she said. "'Of the supreme felicity I have just been enjoying. "'You are a cruel man.' "'No, I am not cruel, for if you love me, "'you must not blush for your indulgence. "'You must know, too, that, loving you passionately, "'I must not suppose that it is to be a surprise "'that I am indebted for my happiness in the enjoyment of the most ravishing sights, for if I owed it only to mere chance, I should be compelled to believe that any other man in my position might have had the same happiness, and such an idea would be misery to me. Let me be indebted to you for having proved to me this morning how much enjoyment I can derive from one of my senses. Can you be angry with my eyes? Yes. They belong to you. Tear them out. The next day, the moment the doctor had gone, she sent her maid out to make some purchases. Ah, she said a few minutes after, my maid has forgotten to change my chemise. Allow me to take her place. Very well, but recollect that I give permission only to your eyes to take a share in the proceedings. Agreed. She unlaced herself, took off her stays and her chemise, and told me to be quick and put on the clean one. But I was not speedy enough, being too much engaged by all I could see. Give me my chemise, she exclaimed. It is there on that small table. Where? There, near the bed. Well, I will take it myself. She leaned over towards the table and exposed almost everything I was longing for, and, turning slowly round, she handed me the chemise, which I could hardly hold, trembling all over with fearful excitement. She took pity on me. My hands shared the happiness of my eyes. I fell in her arms, our lips fastened together, and, in a voluptuous, ardent pressure, we enjoyed an amorous exhaustion not sufficient to allay our desires, but delightful enough to deceive them for the moment. With greater control over herself than women have generally under similar circumstances, she took care to let me reach only the porch of the temple, without granting me yet a free entrance to the sanctuary. End of chapter 15, part 4